Now, religion and spirituality are two different things. Spirituality is innate. Religion is 100% environmentally transmitted through the sacred text, the practice, the community. It is a very strong claim that we are innately spiritual beings, and peer review science supports it 100%. In this interview, I'm joined by Professor Lisa Miller. Dr. Miller is a New York Times bestselling author and professor of clinical psychology at Columbia University. She is the founder and director of the Spirituality Mind-Body Institute, the first Ivy League graduate program and research institute in spirituality and psychology. Her innovative research has been published in more than 100 peer-reviewed articles in leading journals. Dr. Miller's 2021 book, The Awakened Brain, explores the neuroscience of spirituality and offers a bold new paradigm for human flourishing. In this lively and wide-ranging conversation, we explore the neuroscience of the awakened brain, to what extent we can say that spirituality is innate in human nature, the scientific evidence for what Carl Jung referred to as synchronicity, how spirituality and depression may be two sides of the same coin, and why depression may be viewed as a call to awakening, and more. You can learn more about Professor Miller's work by visiting lisamillerphd.com. Okay, Dr. Miller, welcome to the show. Um, to get started, could you maybe just give us a little bit of background um, to who you are and the work that you do? Sure. I'm a clinical psychologist and a clinical scientist of over 20 years. I've been a professor at Columbia University the whole time, and my life's work has really been to use the lens of science to look at the extraordinary impact of lived human spirituality onto the rest of our lives. Incredible. And why have you decided to devote your working life to this to this cause? You know, I started out as a clinical psychologist intern, my very first job after my doctorate, on a big city hospital in New York. And what I quickly saw was that the patients who I saw in September and were released, you know, the first week of October were back in November. And as I looked into their files, it seemed to me that the very same patients who suffered the most we're in and out and in and out in a revolving door type way. And that they really weren't getting better. And even though the treating therapists were very bright and very caring, the models we had were insufficient. And so I started listening as a young intern, you know, in my mid twenties, listening to the patients and they'd say things like Dr. Miller, could you come here and way over here, not, not in your office, like into the kitchen on the unit, into the back pantry, and there they'd say things like, will you pray with me? Or I've got to tell you something about spiritual life. You know, they'd start telling me these jewels that to them were so precious that they had to be told. And yet they sensed, you know, forbidden in the open space. These were secret conversations. So I learned two important things. And the first was that the most precious gift that we have to share in the moments of unspeakable pain is actually from the spiritual heart. And then the second thing I learned was there had been no place for that in mental health. And those two things didn't square. So my career became about using the lens of science, a language that mental health respects, to transform our field of treatment, prevention, even our map of how humans are really built. That's really interesting. Um, so you've read, a, you've read a book called The Awakened Brain. Um, just before we get going and, and cover some of the topics within the book, um, what is, what is the awakened brain? You know, what, how, would, how would you define it? 
I wrote the book, The Awakened Brain, because this precious science on our deep spiritual nature was not making it into mainstream society. I'd always thought as a scientist, we will do our articles and, and we've done well over a hundred articles, MRI studies, genotyping studies, epidemiological studies, all showing clear as a bell. We are naturally spiritual beings. And when we strengthen our innate capacity for spiritual life, our whole life unfolds differently. So here was this science so clear, glaringly, awesomely. So I, I wrote the book, The Awakened Brain, because I wanted everyone to have for their own surveillance, for their own consideration, access to the science that shows we are totally hardwired, every one of us, for a deeper look into life. We are born with a transcendent faculty, a neurodocking station. Whether you say spirit or sacred consciousness, we are born with a, a landing pad for transcendent awareness and even more so to be in a dynamic dialogue with the transcendent. That's amazing. Look at who we are. <laughs> it's incredible. And I think, you know, there is such a need in the world for people like yourself, Dr. Miller, who, you know, you're, you've done a lot of amazing science in this field. And I think we need, sort of need to bridge that gap between science and spirituality. And that's what I really admire, admire about someone like yourself. Um, something I find really interesting um, from listening to your interview with, I think it was Mo, Mo Goddard. It was, uh, you spoke in there about this link between the human resonance of the planet and high amplitude alpha waves of, the, of our brains during a meditative state. Can you tell us a bit more about that? And yes. Um, yeah. So if you think of times where you've been deep in the forest, so you've really left the things made by humans, how it feels different. I mean, yes, the air is fresher, and the, but there's something in, in the deep fiber of, of the presence of the forest, which feels different than even, you know, not, I don't even mean the heart of the city. I mean, when we're surrounded by things made by humans, cement and lampposts and so forth. Well, there's a reason for that. When we are in a deep spiritual state, our brain gives off a certain wavelength measured through EEG. EEG measures the energy as it comes off our, our brain, how we're using our brain. Okay. The spiritually engaged brain vibrates at the wavelength of high amplitude alpha. And that's even stronger if through times of struggle and pain, we have found a deeper spirituality that becomes our new go-to, our new set point. Then, just as a matter of course, come on in, lie down, relax, we start to move into that deep space of alpha. Well, alpha is the same wavelength that goes by another name in another field. It is Schumann's resonance. It is the wavelength, the constitutive wavelength of nature, of all life. From the Earth's crust up one mile, all the way around the Earth, whether it's China or Africa or the North, one, all the way around the Earth. That means that the same wavelength that means that the spiritually engaged brain vibrates at the wavelength of all life. I interpret the oneness of the wavelength to be representative of the deep felt awareness of oneness we feel when we're in the forest or when we're on the ocean and see light sparkling on the waves. The felt sense of oneness is real. In terms of the fiber and stuff of reality, it is ontologically, it is real. There is a oneness as much as there is a distinction and a separateness. And we can perceive and know that when we are in a state 
of high amplitude alpha. We rejoin the family of life. My view is that Eden is not a place long ago, far away. Eden is right here when we choose to move into the level of perception through which we feel and know our oneness with all life. Eden is available to us. It's a choice to put ourselves into a unit of state of knowing and feeling and connecting with all life. And it's all that much easier when we're in nature because nature actually entrains the brain, the great force, who I call God, spirit, consciousness in and through all life entrains our brain. We rejoin. We align here as a separate being with the force that brings us into harmony with the oneness. Tell me about the time you were kayaking and you seen some geese. Yes. Well, so everybody else, the geese, the bobcats, the deer, the mice, everybody else is aware of this foundational rhythm in life. What I feel is what I see as measured by alpha. So you'll see other living beings completely aware of someone coming before they arrive. Other living beings are dialed into the unit of reality. But we humans, we can if we make the effort to join the, the kingdom of life. But most of the time we're distracted. Our huge frontal lobe gets us out of the rhythm of life. It is a choice that we make every moment if we're going to live in relationship. Everyone else out there is living in relationship. So I'll share with you a story. I was paddling down the river in our backyard and it was March. So the water's high, the snow is melted and it's a little fierce. You can't always see what's under you. And I was paddling hard in this kayak when suddenly in the swell, a group of geese came up, ah, ah, gesturing me, hey, go right. Well, so I went right. Of course, they're saying go. They're literally craning their necks. Go right. So I followed them and I went right narrowly to avert a huge cement pylon just under the waves. The geese had saved me. And not only that, they had preemptively guided me away from danger. I go further down the river. This time go left. New geese go left. And I go left. And again, narrowly avert a pylon. You know, we humans, we leave things. We build structures in the water and leave them. You know? So I found the water further and now there's no geese. I'm looking around. I hit a pylon. I flip. I'm in the water flailing, trying to hold on to my kayak when I see two human beings up on the hill. And I think, oh, good. And I'm waving, hey, can you give me a hand? So the two human beings looked at me, turned their back, walked away, got into the Mercedes <laughs> and drove off. And I thought, wow, the geese were really here for me today. And those two humans, they were not. So everyone else is aware that we are a family of life, that there's a total symphony going on and we're all players and we all constantly are in relationship. When we open our heart and our eyes, we see birds trying to show us things. We hear that we're being guided, really guided in moments to our own protection by fellow living beings. And maybe we could contribute back. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you what keeps me up at night. What really, really, you know, when I hopefully will live to be in my 90s and I'm on my deathbed, what is the one thing I hope somehow I was part of changing? And it was to end the Holocaust against fellow living beings. If someone came here from another planet and they saw the way we treat our sisters and brothers who are every bit as dialed in to God, the source of life as us, who are wise and kind, 
who take care of fellow species. They, they would think there was some bizarre Holocaust where the blind were torturing those who could see. This reminds me of, I think it's Eckhart Tolle's book, um, A New Earth, where he talks about um, the tsunami in Thailand in the early 2000s. And almost no animals were killed in that tsunami because they all ran for the mountains like before that you could even see the wave from the waves coming from from the shore now, i don't know how much that's that's an example given in the book i haven't looked into the research behind it or anything but that's just what comes to mind and it sort of strikes me that you know we've been able to develop civilization and modern technology etc cetera, etc cetera, because of the power of as you say our frontal lobes and that has sort of in some maybe some ways separated us from the natural world and that was maybe part of our evolution but maybe the next part of our evolution is that we have to get back into the flow of life otherwise we are going to we're going to destroy ourselves very very quickly here you know I think that's so wise you're so wise and in the awakened brain i talk about the difference between our awakened awareness where we are in connection with all life, where we are in this unitive field that you could pick up as high amplitude alpha on our head. And I think the head of a cow or a goose or a deer, right? Awakened awareness is when we're living in connection with the unit of reality. And just as we are a point and distinct and separate and unique, we are equally part of a wave, white caps on one ocean. We're part of one being. Well, I also contrast awakened awareness to achieving awareness. And achieving awareness is exactly that of which you speak. It has its great benefits, and we have remarkably cultivated medical advances and ways to rescue people from mountaintops with helicopters and ways to go to the moon. And while there's many technical, strategic, tactical accomplishments we have, to your point, we have not kept up with achieving awareness on the side of awakened awareness. They are way out of balance. So I'd give our achieving awareness about a 9.9, and I'd give our awakened awareness as toggling between a 2 and a 3 as a society. Mm. And if we could develop our awakened awareness to be at the level of achieving awareness and use them in tandem, how amazing we would be. What a sustainable, beautiful world to give emerging adults to inherit the earth and then in turn your children and your children's children, where we're in harmony with all living beings and can strategically and tactically figure out a win-win, where the wild crow and the deer win as much as we win, where all life and human life have a win-win game. That is totally feasible. That is feasible. And I think it's your generation, the rising generation of young adults that can get us there. I really do. I don't think you'll have to fix our problems. Maybe you won't have them. Wow. That's a that's an inspiring vision to work towards. I can't think of nothing better than that. You know, like everyone's like talking about like going to Mars and uh, colonizing there, but why don't we just get this this right? Um, yes, this, this right first. Eden, the Eden that's right here, and we live in Eden when we live in an awakened state of mind within this beautiful natural world. So it is a it is an ability to cultivate through meditation, through prayer, through walks in nature, the openness through which we start to notice, hey, the geese are guiding me into safety. Hey, what do I learn from the way this tree is reaching out to save the other tree to its own peril? Hey, what happens when you know the sun sets and it's just in that hour when all these animals who otherwise are hidden come out? You know, what it's extraordinary we can learn from each other. And just as they take care of us, we could take such better care of them. Uh, something that jumps to mind here as well is Thich Nhat Hanh, in one of his books, he says, 
the kingdom is always available. The question is whether we are available to it. And it's sort of like you're just, it's the, the state of your mind, state of your mind and the high amplitude alpha makes that kingdom available. Um, now something that really blew my mind in the book, I'm not sure if you remember this or not, or not, because there was a lot in there and a lot of different experiments you mentioned, but I'll throw it out there and see if you, if you do recall it. Um, you talk about an experiment by Gene Achterberg. Um, Most about... important experiment in the book. Boy, you should come teach my class. Yeah. Can you just tell us about this experiment and the significance of it? Because to me, that was just incredible. You know, it's an extremely important experiment. Thank you for highlighting that. So, the first two-thirds of the awakened brain bring together all the studies that show we are innately hardwired to perceive that we are loved, held, guided, and never alone. We are perceived, we are born to be able to perceive a transcendent relationship and then bring that deep love to one another as fellow human beings and fellow living beings. At the end of the first two-thirds of a skeptic and and skeptics are welcome, could say, well, just because we're hardwired to perceive that doesn't mean it's real. What if human beings are just perceived to see the happy possibility? Tell me what's real. So in the final third of the awakened brain, I show emerging science. There's beautiful studies. Some of them are just jaw-droppingly powerful that show not only are we built to perceive the unit of reality, that we are, are in transcendent relationship, but that when we do dial into transcendent relationship, there is material change at the other end, far away, non-locality of consciousness. One of the pioneers in this work was Larry Dossie, who wrote the book One Mind over 15 years ago. So in the final third of The Awakened Brain, I share evidence. And one of the most compelling studies on the non-locality of consciousness, of our ability to actually budge and change the world at a distance in a way that is done in alignment with the nature of love and goodness, right? We can't just change anything in the old way if it is done in the alignment with source is extraordinary. I share the, I share the study of Dr. Akterhoff who had two MRIs in two different buildings. In one MRI, in building number one, was the traditional healer. The patient was in a different MRI in an entirely different building. As the traditional healer starts to do his or her work, a consistent pattern time and time again keeps coming up, charting blood flow, the fMRI, functional MRI. Within an instant, the identical pattern is seen at a distance in the patient. In other words, the healer's engagement into spirit, sacred consciousness was then through non-locality of consciousness awakened in the patient. Superposition, one thing in two places. Now, what's remarkable about these studies is that the healing work is done in a way that is in it is loving, holding, and guiding. It, there's nothing harmful. It's all good. It's all life-giving. It's like the geese, the source of all life through us. So where science has now to take the next step, we've established we're built to be in a transcendent relationship. We've established it is real because at a great distance, the transcendent relationship can budge physical things. Right? 
And the next piece is to show that it is through alignment with the great source, with the oneness, that it's not all just like, I want to, you know, like the Google of, of the mind I, or the Amazon of the mind. I'm going to send it out and get it. It's not about mail order. It's not about shopping through the cosmos. Instead, our great consciousness allows us to align with force, the oneness that is loving and good. And through that oneness, help others. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. Now, we've already touched on it briefly, but I really, I think it's such an important point I really want to sort of uh, go over is to what extent can we say that spirituality is innate in human nature and what evidence is there of this? It's a very strong claim and it is 100% empirically supported by peer review science. It is a very strong claim that we are innately spiritual beings and peer review science supports it 100%. This is how we can use a twin study. A twin study in epidemiology looks at twins raised together, twins raised apart, and factors out their sameness, sameness in temperament, sameness in IQ, sameness in diagnosis as a factor of genes and environment. So by way of comparison, whether we're outgoing or introverted, whether we're tightly wound or laid back, our temperament is half inborn half environmentally formed. We can soothe ourselves. We can breathe. We can talk ourselves down. If we're more introverted, we, we can say, okay, let's just say it. Hello. You know, we can work with our temperament half and half. Our intellect, our IQ is 60% innate. We're hardwired. So you were born smart. 40% cultivated over time. Our studies, our learning, our experiences. The capacity through which we experience spiritual life, twin studies show, is one-third innate, hardwired, two-thirds environmentally formed, which means we are all spiritual beings, every one of us. And our choices in picking our environment are of enormous consequence onto the shaping of our spiritual core. Our choices in whether or not we pray or meditate affect our inner environment. Our choices in whether or not we serve and help fellow human beings or living beings radically affect, those are the environment through which our spiritual core is formed. So when we're little, when we're young, you know, the first decade, second decade of life, our parents, our grandparents, our community offer a great deal of impact onto the formation of the spiritual core. But as we move through our 20s and 30s and onwards, we choose our environment. And it is an extraordinary opportunity we hold in our own hands. We are the captain of our ship to choose to cultivate the spiritual core, to awaken our brain, to engage our neural docking station of transcendent relationship where we feel this love you can feel the love in and through the world. And then someone shows up and I don't care if it's a gentleman who's a homeless guy or your boss or the person who annoyed you yesterday, somehow you love them. Wow. Okay. Okay. Very cool. Now, what are the costs? You know, you could argue that we live in a secular society. Um, what are the costs of ignoring this part of our nature? So I would argue that 40 years ago, in the good attempt to be inclusive, we threw religion out of the public square. Now, religion and spirituality are two different things. Spirituality is innate. Religion is 100% environmentally transmitted through the sacred text, the practice, the community, right? Religion and spirituality go hand in hand for many people, but they're two different things. Well, 40 years ago, we threw all religion out of the public square. It was done in the positive effort to be inclusive, but it actually became radically exclusive, radically mm -hmm. exclusive. And we now have a post-industrial global culture in which the public square is stone silent 
on spiritual life. And by public square, I mean TV, the boardroom, the classroom, the college campus. We have, in 40 years, become a spiritually non-conversant society, which means we don't even know the full inner landscape and what to call it within our spiritual heart or our transcendent mind. The biggest loss of silencing religion in the public square was that we threw the spiritual baby out with the bathwater. The second greatest loss is that we lost the beauty of pluralism. Pluralism is when you tell me about Christmas and I tell you about Hanukkah and he tells me about Ramadan and she tells me about Dwala and I wanna hear about the crossing of your grandparents at a spiritual level. And I wanna know when you have a child at the level of the soul, it is who we really are. And in everything that really matters, I mean really matters, we're stone silent. That's a tragedy. We've gouged out our eyes. We can barely see the geese when they say, careful, careful, you can harm yourself. I'm not sure where I read this. It might have been in Scott Barry Kaufman's book on uh, self-trans, was it uh, Maslow and the New Science of Self-Actualization? I can't remember the, the title of the book. A great book, though. But he said something like humans have two two basic needs for narratives in their lives. The, the first one is like, you need to have a sense that your own personal narrative makes sense, but you also need to have the sense that you like, you need a coherent worldview, like a coherent narrative about how the world works. And for the longest time, you know, religions provided this, they help people make sense of their place in the world. Now you, you, you could argue that the overarching narrative that most of our culture has is that we're just, you know, we're sort of just floating in space. Nothing really matters. Um, we're just these intelligent sort of primates with these, you know, prefrontal cortexes that are sort of wandering around. And to me, that's that, to me, that is such a, I can, if that's the underlying narrative behind what we're doing here, you can see why things like depression and anxiety and stuff might be so widespread because I don't know. Have we you have any, eviscerated any meaning. There's meaning written into life and we've eviscerated it. And we've said there's no meaning, but for that, which you concoct in, and this is a very 20th century view, your brain in a box, a little sealed off hermetic box where you make up meaning and it really doesn't matter if it's right or wrong, valid or invalid. And we impute it upon an inert universe. That is the most eviscerated, empty, existentially, excruciatingly meaningless narrative one could imagine. And it's in the air and water of our culture. And what we've done in this huge aching vacuum is replace it with a ridiculous narrative, which is you were born and raised to go shopping. <laughs> uh -huh. Buy stuff and pull yourself up to buy stuff. And, you know, maybe if you're nice, give away stuff. But, but the notion that life is actually alive and symphonic and you're part of it, that you are part of this incredible web of conscious friendships and guidance and care for one another and moments of misunderstanding and reconstitution and renewal. Like there's this wild symphony where you just get more and more deep hearted and loving, more and more availing of ourselves to be kind and know what others need to make win-win decisions where the environment and business can both win at once. I mean, this type of deep mission that we are souls on earth in relationship to a sacred universe that's something worth living for. And why have we never seen as elevated rates of addiction and depression and suicide? Why is the number one killer of Gen Z suicide? Because we've eviscerated the meaning in life. It's big lie 
Don't swallow it. Gen Z is so sensitive and brilliant. I know you'll find your way on the spiritual path. It is right there. And actually, the very best news is that in your 20s and early 30s, you are primed to be exquisitely good at a spiritual quest. Today is a spiritual quest, and you're more hardwired and ready for it than at any other time in life. So Gen Z is awakening spiritually. The pandemic is the plague before the Renaissance, and those young enough to make that transformation are Gen Z. And the vacuum, if there's a vacuum of spirituality or religion, um, you're going to need to have something that fills that space. And in our, it seems to be in our generation, consumption became the thing that went to the top of our value hierarchy. And if you want evidence of that, just go to all of our major cities. You know, it's all just geared around the religion of consumption, you know, which is such a tragedy because it's not going to fill in any holes. You know, it's uh, it's not what we're built for. Um, but I do think your generation is, has a gift. I really do. I think that, you know, that feels empty. That's why people are despairing. You know, this isn't 1950s where thanks for the stuff. Can I have more? You know, the, this is this is a generation that says that's not good enough that going shopping will not fill my heart. And so I think that there, we are, really are in this process of using our awakened brain, waking up to the unitive nature of life, the loving unitive nature of life, waking up to the fact that there's transcendent relationships and spirit in right here, those around us. You know, you're halfway there because Gen Z has said, okay, you know what? It really matters that we give people equal rights. People deserve their rights. Animals deserve their rights. We can work together as a collective crowdsourcing. You know, there's so many ways in which your feet are already moving towards a unit of reality. So I think it's just a matter of tossing off the broken down old narrative handed to you by your predecessors and instead building a narrative that's rooted in a unitive reality, a reality in which we're loved, held, connected, and in symphony playing for one another. Now, I'm not sure if I heard this in an interview or read it in a book, but um, I, there was a study you guys might have done on uh, a the time when people felt most stressed in their lives was the time when they maybe they felt like they they really sort of had to do something or they had this sense of like I must do this and they're sort of trying to control life to a certain extent and that is n not healthy for us and then you give this beautiful metaphor of um, sort of thinking of yourself as almost like a pilot can you maybe tell us a bit more about that and why why that's important so in the air and water of culture is you know achieving awareness and achieving awareness in part is going shopping, but it's also how to get what I want. What are my goals? How will I get them? Tactics, strategy. And starting when we're very young, we're trained to problem solve. We're trained to, if this doesn't work, what can I do to make it work another way? And that's helpful. I'm all for going after things and setting meaningful goals, but that alone is of course not the path to filling the deep heart in life. Strategy is the tactics of the mind. Knowing what matters, knowing where to, what direction to set sail, that requires a deeper form of knowing. And that is not achieving awareness. That is awakened awareness. Awakened awareness is the ability to look into the deep guidance, what is being revealed in life through synchronicity. Why? Far too improbabilistic to have happened by chance. Do I get to speak with you today? Right. It didn't happen yesterday and it didn't happen four years from now. It happened today. You know, why is it that the day I'm pondering, you know, what, where, where, how am I going to help my child? Another parent shows up, sits down on the bus next to me and tells me about her child and answers the question. So we are, there's such um, 
love and guidance through us and among us when we use our awakened awareness. Well, that is not taught in school. That is taught when we seek spiritual truth, when we walk by the side of people who will share spiritual truth with us. But it could be taught in school. It doesn't have to do with my religion versus your religion versus hers or her. Religion, again, is 100% environmentally transmitted. Spirituality, this capacity to awaken, is our birthright. So when we have a choice to make, we could generate 18 logical permutations, or we could know immediately of the heart, which is true for us in our journey. Those two forms of decision-making, and we do need both, are way out of balance. And we're doing a lot more spinning and generating of options which don't hold water and often are untenable. It happens in business. It happens in schools. When we have everything we need, there's an inner compass in us all. When we can get these two forms of knowing together, ask a question of the head and then receive an answer of the heart or have a numinous, transcendent, beautiful experience, and then from it discern direction. We actually are using our inborn ways of knowing, multiple epistemologies, inborn ways of knowing, and bringing them in tandem myelinates the tracks. It literally paves the highway so our brain is more interconnected, which means we are more creative, we are more innovative, we're more aware to what's really happening, situational awareness. That capacity to be creative, not just in our work, but in our lives, opens up a whole nother plane of existence right here, whole nother plane of existence in which suddenly doors open and people show up and we're pursuing a guided path. We don't know where it's going, but we know we're guided. Now, you mentioned there a little bit about synchronicity, and that was something that I find one of, one of the most fascinating parts of the book was just your exploration of, of that topic and some of the science that you know, that might help to explain it. So could you maybe give us some examples of uh, evidence of synchronicity and maybe particularly the work of uh, Jacobo Grinberg? Um, I thought that was really uh, worth talking about. So a synchronicity is when two physically unrelated events appear to have a deeper common meaning, connection or oneness. And those two events could be, you know, two people running into each other, far too improbabilistic to have happened by chance, or it could be an inner event and an outer event. So you may have been thinking about a dear friend from childhood and you haven't spoken for seven years, the whole way home, you were thinking of him. You get there and sure enough, there's a note from your friend that's just arrived in the post or a phone, a message on your phone. This is, this is evidence that um, there's a deeper connection between two seemingly unrelated events at the physical level, far too unprobabilistic to have happened by chance. Synchronicity is guidance. It is confirmatory that you are on, you are, you are buoyant, you are held, you're on a path. And I can share with you synchronicities um, that were absolutely life-changing in my own path. Everyone has these synchronicities. Um, so, so life-changing that had I not listened to them, you know, it's such a loving universe, it might've come around another way or it might not have. I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. Could I do a practice to share with you and your community on synchronicity? Yeah, please do. Okay, good. So I'm going to invite you, if you wish, to just take a moment, clear out your inner space and if you'd like to help you focus, close your eyes.
I invite you to think of a time where you wanted something and you knew just what to do to get it. That red door was yours. It could have been a promotion, an internship, an admission to a school, getting him or her or them to say yes, a place to live. You wanted that and you researched it. A plus B plus C. Strategically, tactically, you got that A, B, C. You go for your red door, put your hand out, you grab the handle, but it's stuck. And you can't believe it's stuck because you did A plus B plus C. It doesn't seem right. You can't believe it. And you might push or kick the door. You might get frustrated and time depressed. But only because that red door stuck. You have no choice. You have to eventually shift. And you could shift 30 degrees, 40 degrees, 110 degrees. And over there, over there is a wide open yellow door. A yellow door. You might have said yellow doors don't exist or you've never heard of yellow doors. You go through the yellow door and there is someone who's more right for you. There is a job that makes you feel alive. There is a community where you finally feel you belong. That yellow door was not what you had wanted. It was better and better for you. And as you sit back now and you look at that yellow door that has everything to do with who you are and where you are today. How did you find that? Was there anyone at that hairpin turn that gave you some guidance, maybe told you a story, some information, a counselor? Could have been a dear friend who, for the very first time, told you a story. Or it could have been someone you met for two minutes for the first time only at a party, never saw again, or at the coffee shop, or something for the first time you read in a book. Never seen that book, never knew that author. A trail angel. And as you sit back now and think stuck red door, hairpin turn, trail angel. And wide open yellow door that has everything to do with who you are and where you are today. How are the most important parts of our lives found? Are we narrowly makers of our path? Or are we discoverers? of our journey and are some of the most important moments that lead to who you are and where you are built in a dialogue, a guided dialogue with life. And now finally, way back, stuck red door, hairpin turned trail angel, wide open yellow door, wearing your road of life is your higher power, God, spirit, Jesus, force, source. Is your higher power in the open yellow door and the stuck red door? Is your higher power in the trail angel or in your ability to be an open heart, an open system, in dialogue? When the road rises up to meet you, do you say yes? And in fact, have you perhaps been on a spiritual path all along? Wow, that's beautiful, Lisa. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, whenever I was doing it at the start, so many things came to mind where I was like, oh, wow, okay. <laughs> like so many examples came to mind of just times where I had sort of thought that I was going to do do it by this logical sequence of A, B, and C, and then it hadn't worked out as I had planned, but that led to something that I had not planned at all. And it just, yeah. So I'm totally with you. That's a powerful exercise. You call that the three doors exercise. Is that right? Well, I invite people to do it two more times to make three doors. <laughs> but I, I shared here 
to say that, you know, people often say, am I spiritual? And yes, I know you're spiritual because you were born spiritual, but am I being spiritual? And the answer is yes. You have lived in dialogue with spirit, with God. You have lived in dialogue with trail angels, the synchronicities that are far too unprobabilistic to have happened by chance, where the trail angel says, hey, look way over there. There's a wide open yellow door. That's a synchronicity. I have never shared this publicly, and I'm really kind of, to be honest, I'm really reluctant to do so. Um, But I think it's just, you know, it's it's an interesting moment. It's an interesting story to maybe bring it up. Um, basically, basically, whenever I was like 24, whenever I was sort of um, trying to figure out what I was going to do with my with my work in life, um, I had this dream one night. I was like, I was basically walking in a city street and I was like, I had the question in my mind, like, what should I do with my future? Like, I mean, what, what am I going to do? Like, what's... <laughs> and I was really interested in... To provide some context, I was really interested in psychology, particularly the psychology of Carl Jung at the time. And as I'm walking down the street, the, I'm walking down, it's clear, it's crystal clear as day. There's this like, basically like a small child appeared in front of me on a bicycle. And I have never shared this publicly. And I'm really kind of, to be honest, I'm really reluctant to do so. Um, but... I think it's just, you know, it's, it's an interesting moment. It's an interesting story to maybe bring it up. Um, basically, basically whenever I was like 24, whenever I was sort of, um, trying to figure out what I was going to do with my, with my work in life, um, I had this dream one night. I was like, I was basically walking in a city street and I was like, I had the question in my mind, like, what should I do with my future? Like, I mean, what, what am I going to do? Like, what's, <laughs> and I was really interested in, to provide some context, I was really interested in psychology, particularly the psychology of Carl Jung at the time. And as I'm walking down the street, the, I'm walking down, it's clear, it's crystal clear as day. There's this like, basically like a small child appeared in front of me on a bicycle and it appears and I ask, what should I do? What should I do with, with my life at this point? And the, the, the child turned around crystal clear and just said Jungian psychology right so that's that's that was one thing I woke up and I was was just a weird very vivid dream okay (laughs) and the next night right I was on the way to so I'm from a a county dairy in Northern Ireland I was on the way to the city with my sister we're driving to get a burrito and Shanid turned around and said to me you know oh I was on Facebook today and I saw this really interesting uh, ad for a course happening in, it's like a one day course happening in Belfast tomorrow. It's uh, like an introduction to the, to the, uh, to Jungian psychology. Right. And I nearly like slammed the brakes on the car. I was like, what? And so anyway, um, I, I went to this course. You said, you, it. you saw the synchronicity, the sacred synchronicity. And you said, yes, to it and moved on it. Yes. And, and here, here's where, here's where it gets interesting. So I went to the course. It was really interesting. It was a great day. I didn't really think much of it. And then months later, I was sort of planning, or I've sort of had this idea for this weekend university that I'm currently doing. And I reached out to the guy that had ran the course and I said, would you be interested in hosting or teaching the very first weekend university event? And 
he did. It was actually it was a it was a crash course on Jungian psychology, and that whole thing sparked from that. I suppose that moment, and you know, the reason we're having this interview now probably is because I move forward with that synchronicity, and I'm not saying that that that's kind of just how events unfolded. But for me, it was a very significant, I suppose, turning point in my life. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but that was... Tremendous <laughs> sense. It makes tremendous sense. And how profoundly awakened of you to listen in your dream to the voice of the little boy on the bicycle, traveling, right, forward. And then to know the very next day of the synchronicity that you're called, there's the class, there is the young class. And there, you know, it, it's just profoundly beautiful that you use your awakened awareness and then you act on it. You trust that deeper form of knowing and look how it's opened for yes, you and so many other people. Yeah. I just thought that was worth sharing. And uh, that when you live an awakened life, it's an inspired life. It's inspired. That's not an additive. Like that's an exponentiating kerosene on the fire bonfire life. It defies the little tiny steps of marginal growth, and it just takes you to a whole nother space where, yes, you flourish, and then everyone around you, you're fulfilling your path, brings on the floodlights for hundreds, thousands of other people. And that is the truth. When we follow our awakened brain, when we listen and use our awakened awareness, there's an, an inspired life beyond measure. It's way beyond the world of measurement. It's in the world of miracles, lived sacred, every single day miracles. Um, Lisa, a lot of your work explores or has explored the relationship between uh, spirituality and depression. Mm. And I think this is super important to cover here. And, you know, to what extent can we say that these are two sides of the same coin? Depression is very often the knock at the door for an awakening. In fact, depression I don't feel like, you know, yesterday everything was fine, same home, same partner, same job. Today it all feels empty. And there's a real tendency to say everything out there isn't good enough anymore. But actually, it's not that everything out there somehow lacks luster. It's that our deep inner being is feeling the existential hollow, the pain of deep within an insufficiency, but it's not that I'm not fast enough or cute enough or rich enough. The insufficiency is an insufficiency of our way of being. It's our stance in life, which yesterday was fine, but da -da -da -da, it's time to grow. Depression <laughs> is a pull forward. It's like the ignition so that we can emerge into our next station of being, which is an awakening, it is an awakening to a deeper level of life. It is seen more love. It is seen more interconnection. It is feeling a call to give and serve as you're doing here and illuminate and speak the truth and move into the center of the world as you're doing here now and having conversations of truth. These are all outcomes of living an awakened life. Depression is the knock at the door for that awakening. Very often, the type of story you shared, as I've heard it, has been kicked off by feeling, you know, the same old just doesn't do it for anymore. There's a growth in us that feels like a half empty glass of spirituality, but it's actually that the vessel is expanded. Now, what does that feel like? It's tough. I mean, it's tough. You know, um, why God is this happening to me? Why, what is life asking of me? What actually is my purpose? And I don't mean, am I going to be a teacher or an accountant? I mean, ultimate purpose in relation to gall, I guess, ultimate reality. Well, ultimate reality, what's that? You know, so that's a real struggle. And weighing gently, gently moving through 
and seeing where the synchronicities guide us, who shows up, who we learn from, we realize that God gives us everything we need to grow through a developmental depression and expand. And one week we wake up and the world is larger, much larger and brighter than before we ever were depressed. That's spiritual mm. expansion. So depression is not lost time or downtime. It is the most important time because it opens when we say yes to it and we seek and we pray and we meditate and we search and we read sacred texts and we listen to one another's stories. Depression primes us to be more open, more sensitive, take more in because the way of being yesterday is no longer enough. We have outgrown that cage and we're pushing at the bars and we need to be free. And through that process, we have to say yes to it. We are greater than we ever have been before. Life is more inspired and we have a bigger life. So depression is your friend. It is not your enemy. And it is the beginning of the next phase, the next chapter in your awakening. That's such an important message to get out there that, you know, that there's a reason for the depression and it might just be this this call to awakening that is going to bring so much more to your life, you know? And I think if if that was the understanding of what was what was happening with depression, I think it would really help a lot of people get through the dark times, you know? Well, I think that in our data, we've looked over two thirds of the time, depression is actually a developmental depression. That means literally we're hardwired to grow. It's a chapter break to expand. The other way we can have a developmental depression is when we encounter something we've never seen before. For the first time I see evil or hate or I'm treated disrespectfully and it shocks, it, it sort of is traumatic. It moves the ground under me. Well, underneath that type of earthquake, the ground isn't safe and it cracks open is actually liberation. There was an illusion of control, an illusion of achieving awareness that we control things. COVID was a rattle in just that sense. You know, yes, our schools shut down and so did our hospitals and nobody's going to take care of you like your mom or your daddy. There's actually what was real, what was buoyant, love, deep commitment to one another, care, family, the connection to the transcendent. That was real. That was buoyant. So that was a collective developmental depression that we're now coming out of into an awakening. And spaces just you know, to honor greatly what you're doing right here. This is the platform. This is a place in the public square where we come out of an old limited way of viewing to rise to the station that we're not only equipped to inherit, but we must inherit to do this next phase. Wow. Wow. That's, that's very well said. Um, so now I think it's also important, Lisa, to cover some of the neuroscience here. And mm -hmm. the question that I, I wanted to ask is if we were to compare to fMRI scans or two brain scans of let's say one was an awakened brain and one was um, just uh, like an ordinary unawakened brain what would the main differences you would see in those scans be well it turns out that sustained awakened awareness choosing each day to live into the deeper sacred transcendent reality prayer meditation nature right action all that we do sacred reading a sustained awakened awareness is associated with literally a more powerful brain, a more capable brain of perception, reflection, and orientation. And we see that in cortical thickness, processing power, in the parietal, precuneus, and occipital among people who over eight years sustained an important place of spiritual awareness in their life. Now, what's remarkable is that these broad regions of cortical thickness in the awakened brain 
are protective against recurrent of depression. Protective against recurrence of depression. Protective today against how well we're going to feel the extent of depression a year from now, which means that through struggle, spiritual awareness is built. And as spiritual awareness is built, the brain literally becomes more perceptive, thicker, stronger in regions that allow us to then continue to look into the deeper, truer nature of reality. That means that when unwanted things come, stuck red doors, we know there's a yellow door. And we know there's a trail angel and we show up as trail angels and help people, the yellow doors. So there is a neuro, you know, very important set of neural correlates that say a sustained awakened awareness gives us a stronger brain, more capable of navigating the world in a deeper way that yes, in time protects us against depression. How much so? Well, in that same sample, we looked and people who have a strong spiritual life, oftentimes built through despair and struggle going forward are 75% less likely to have a major depression. And that goes up to 90% when they are otherwise at hard ri high risk, meaning at high risk because they live under stress or they grew up in a house where we think, you know, we always get the short end of the stick, depressogenic thinking. All of that is way superseded. 52 card pickup sends the cards flying when there's a strong spiritual heart. Wow. So if the person's going through a really, a really dark time, and then this time is used to sort of strengthen that spiritual capacity, it has m marked changes in the brain that you can measure over time. Yes. And in fact, the areas that are thick and strong in the awakened brain are not thick, but thin in people with recurrent major depression suggesting that sustained spiritual life is neuroprotective, suggesting that depression and spiritual awareness are two sides of one door. Wow. Okay. This is, this is incredible. Um, so Lisa, what are your views on consciousness? Um, what is your view that, uh, on the possibility that consciousness is generated by the brain? Consciousness exists independent of matter which means that consciousness can be expressed in matter, in a state of matter, and consciousness can exist independent of matter, and consciousness can alter matter, Okay. as we just okay. saw. So what then is the brain? What then is the brain? And, you know, the, in the 20th century, there was a sort of latent assumption, really, in much of neuroscience and society at large, that the brain was like a factory, a hermetically sealed, you know, bricks and mortar factory that makes thoughts like packages going down an assembly line. In fact, I think I have a memory of a childhood textbook in which brains were likened to factories and thoughts were likened to packages produced in the factory. But now we realize as a field in neuroscience, there's no evidence whatsoever that the brain is like a factory. There is no evidence of biological reductionism, that everything we experience was somehow produced in the hermetically sealed brain, only to be entered through the front door of language or pictures or the five senses. So what's an alternative view? Well, it seems to make a great deal of sense in light of the Achterhoff experiment showing consciousness to be non-local, showing the healer in one MRI to have enormous impact upon the patient in a second MRI at some great distance away. That 
the brain could receive consciousness and send consciousness, like a send and receive antenna, or perhaps that is sort of a bridge model to send and receive like an antenna of something that actually we've yet to quite wrap our minds around, but is something like the reification, the coming into form, into matter of consciousness, something like a beam me up Scotty. And that, that's very interesting to me that there's a material, you know, we know that when through meditation, there's synaptogenesis. Well, you know, that we somehow build our awareness. Well, what, what built it? It was the reception of consciousness. So we have yet to develop a model of the relationship. Of, we have yet to confirm a model, but it is a feast for the next wave of neuroscientists. We only have now neural correlates. And for now, it basically works to rely on the, an antenna model. A send and receive model explains a great deal of how consciousness is in us, through us, and around us and lands on our neuro docking station to be experienced. Well, and I suppose the more we're in that, that high amplitude alpha state, the more in tune we are with it and the more, I suppose, effective our antenna would be then. Yes, beautifully put. So when we move into awakened awareness, when we engage in the unitive field of consciousness, which is love and information, I think it's a sacred spirit, right? Then we are have accessible to us, I think, all information. All information is in the sacred consciousness field. And a young child will immediately know it. We call it precognition. But is it really that we've sort of cast out a rod and reeled something in in advance? Or is all information available to us and maybe it's hypervalenced or more present when it is of immediate personal imminent connection? Perhaps I think oftentimes that there is a hybrid in reality between locality and non-locality. They're both true because the little boy on the bicycle came the night before, right? So there's something about proximity and also non-locality. Both are true. Just as we are a point and we are a wave, right? We are at different GPS coordinates and we're part of one wow. sacred consciousness. Wow, that's really well said. Um, we could we could explore this for the next probably three hours and <laughs> we, could, we could still keep going, but uh, we've only got a few minutes left. And I, I really would... There's a couple of other exercises um, that I think are really sort of remarkable and impactful for people. We could maybe pick one um, to wrap up with here, if you don't mind. There's there, there's one where you give it's called I think it's called like the animal visualization, and there's also one where you essentially sit down at a table with three people who genuinely sort of want the best for you. I find that one really really impactful. So maybe if we could do that, the second one. So before I share this practice, may I honor the teacher who gave it to me so that I can then share it forward with you, the late Dr. Gary Weaver. And Dr. Gary Weaver developed this practice. I, I feel that it was likely inspired in his work helping people who were very cut off from spirit, who had had spiritual injury, who had seen, you know, there's the light of truth, the torch, and then there's the torch bearer. And the light of truth burns true and strong. But when, when we're young, we meet a torch bearer mm -hmm. who doesn't walk the walk. They could be a little foibled or they could be quite, quite harmful. It's very easy to turn our back on the torch mm -hmm. when it's actually just the human who was carrying the torch. And he helped people get back to the flame wow. okay. through this practice. Okay. So I'm going to invite you, if you wish, to close your eyes, clear out your inner space.
I invite you to set before you a table. This is your table. And to your table, you may invite anyone living or deceased who truly has your best interest in mind. Anyone living or deceased who truly has your best interest in mind. And with them all sitting there, ask them if they love you. And now you may invite your higher self, the part of you that's so much more than anything that you have done or not done, anything you have or don't have, your true, eternal, higher self. And ask you if you love you. And now finally, you may invite your higher power, whatever word is yours, God, source, whatever word is yours, and ask if they love you. And now with all of those people sitting here right now, what do they need to tell you now? What do they need to share? What do you need to know? What will they share right now? When you're ready, I invite you back. This is your counsel, and they are always there for you. Who shows up may change depending on where we are in our road of life, and we can ask what's on our heart at that moment. This is your birthright. This is your innate awakened brain. No matter who you meet or what happens, no one can ever take this from you. This is your seat of awakened awareness. And wow, Lisa, that was powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, just one more, one more to wrap up now before, before we head off. Um, are you hopeful for the future of spirituality in our society? I am tremendously hopeful and it's not aspirational. It's based on data. I see the awakening. I see the engagement of our awakened brain. I see Gen Z leading the charge, knowing what a flame looks like. This is such an exciting time, but we do have for to sure, say yes. For sure. And where can people learn more about your work and get a copy of the book? I would love to share The Awakened Brain. This is science 20 years from my lab and fellow labs put yes into scientific you know, references and so forth, but also stories, stories of awakening, stories of the extraordinary life-changing synchronicities, the one you so beautifully shared, a pivot in the entire journey. And this is our birthright. Everyone I want you to have an amazing, inspired life. I want everyone to, and you're wired to do it. And this is a way of listening and knowing what is being shown to you. For sure. I would are. definitely recommend people uh, to pick up the book. It's it's an amazing combination of stories, science, neuroscience. Lisa shares a lot about her own life and, you know, the synchronicities in there and your your journey to having your, your kids and adopting and everything. So it's, it's really, really fascinating uh, reading. So I definitely recommend it. And yeah, Lisa, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute del delight speaking with you. And Great. Oh, and Instagram, Dr. Lisa Miller, Dr. Awesome. Lisa Miller. Awesome. I'd love to connect.
I loved our conversation. Thank you for including me. This is a really important center public square. I really appreciate Thank it. You. So I want to wish you the best going forward. And I hope this isn't the last time we get to connect. I know. I know. But did my thank you get on your tape? I want them to know you have created a public square that is part of <laughs> I've this never awakening. thought of it, but I like that before, but it's definitely, uh, it's, it's a cool way to think about a public square. And thank you for being so thoughtful. That was so deeply considered. You didn't just read the book. You took it in and took it to a very deep level. And I'm really honored and grateful to connect and then share that forward. Because It's fairly so good to you. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, I'll let you go. Take care, Lisa.